Hello and welcome to another uh, Paro seminar. Uh, this month I wanted to look at the concept of the neighbour and the reason for that is because just, I mean, this is a problem at any point in history but it's just very obvious for some of us at the moment that we, we live very much in a moment in which the categories of friend and enemy are very, very um, strong. Uh, and there's a whole pile of reasons for that. No point getting into, you know, but it serves some people's interests to create friend and enemy distinctions. Um, <clears throat> it's, uh, you know, whether it's an individual who wants to do YouTube videos and so they want to uh, make fun of the enemy um, or whether it's uh, kind of bigger organisations or governments who want to so um, uh, kind of division. Um, the category of friend and enemy is something that we are all too aware of. Um, and it's very primal. Uh, Carl Schmitt, a famous political theorist who was loved by the Nazis, um, saw politics as, as largely about friend and enemy, uh, working out you know, which is which and managing this friend-enemy distinction. So um, it's very... Um, is very central to our our sense of self as who is a friend, who is an enemy, who is safe, who is a danger, who is the same, who is other, right? And so that those kind of distinctions you can hear in friend and enemy. So the friend is safe, the enemy is dangerous. The friend is close, the enemy is distant. The the friend is um, uh, known, and the enemy is stranger. You know? So you can kind of get these kind of uh, binary distinctions. Um, so, uh, where will we start? Okay, I guess the first thing is what do we do with an enemy? Right. So I want to talk about that briefly. And I'm not going to, this isn't going to be a long seminar. I'll say a few things, introduce it. Um, if you want to go deeper into the subject, you could look at this book uh, called The Neighbour. Uh, it's pretty heavy. It's three essays, um, all based around this idea of who is the neighbour, uh, how do we love the neighbour? What does that mean? Um, and uh, yeah, so I was actually thinking of doing a reading group in one of the essays. So we'll see if there's an interest in going deeper into the subject. But I just wanted to introduce it today. So when we come to the enemy, there's, there's kind of like three ways that we try to get rid of their toxicity. So the enemy is toxic, right? The, the friend is safe and the enemy has, has some sort of madness or toxicity or otherness that threatens to destabilize us, that threatens to destroy us. And that can be real or that can be imagined, but there is this threat of the enemy. And so what you find is when we confront the enemy, we often try to either convert them, right? Make the other into the same. So if it's somebody of a different religion, uh, try to get them to do the same practices as ourselves. Um, if that doesn't work, that's a form of consumption, by the way, where you, you consume the, the, the otherness and it becomes part of your system. So when an animal consumes another animal, that animal becomes part of the energy of the animal that ate it. So there's a kind of consumption notion there uh, to take away that toxic other, to bring it into the social body. And if you can't do that, then you want to vomit the enemy out. You want to repel them. You want to um, uh, excommunicate them. Get yourself as far from them as possible. Those are two very primal 
ways of dealing with the enemy. And of course, they're very, um, uh, they're very appealing to us. We see it in a lot in movies and sports where we want to have enemies that we can defeat. <laughs> um, uh, so the, so that, that's either defeat or destroy or get rid of or bring into um, to make the same. Uh, or the third option, which is a type of tolerance of the enemy. Uh, we have to occupy the same space. And so as long as you keep your weirdness, your strange beliefs and views to yourself, um, then we can at least somehow interact. Um, or, or a fourth one, I'll add a fourth one to that, which is beneath all of our differences, we're, we're the same. So the enemy is just a friend who you haven't got to know, right? You know, if you, if you um, get to know their story and you, underneath the differences, there's really a, a sameness. So there's four kind of ways that we try to detoxify the other, to try to protect ourselves from the destabilizing power of the enemy. Um, and the notion of the enemy is very closely connected to uh, scapegoating mechanisms. Uh, we... Uh, can feel that there's something getting in the way of getting what we want and we scapegoat another we find a group that we can blame for that problem in society if only we got rid of this group of people then everything would be fine right that's a kind of scapegoating this group takes on all of the inner antagonisms of the society are put onto this other and then we fantasize that if we get rid of them then everything will be okay so the enemy is like a type of cancer that can be removed from the social body, kind of bringing health back to the body. And that's very important as well. So the enemy is this other. They're toxic. They are strange. Um, we try to either you know, make them into ourselves, consuming them, or we try to vomit them out, keep them separate from us. Or we try to hide the toxicity and tolerance or we try to find this notion of, hey, we're all the same. Let's all sing Kumbaya together, right? Um, but it's the notion that the enemy can in some way be, be taken out. So the enemy is not a symptom of the society. The enemy is a cancerous lump that can be removed. In contrast to the friend and the enemy, you have, and I wish I'd called the seminar this, actually, I just thought of this five minutes ago, but um, the frenemy, right? So what is the neighbor? Well, the neighbor is a syllogism, a bringing together of these two notions, right? Of stranger and known, of same and other, right? They are, the, the neighbor is close to us, but also strange to us, also different to us. They are... Um, other and yet close right so there's this there's this kind of weird thing where the the neighbor occupies this weird space between the same and the other so they are the frenemy uh, which is a great term <laughs> uh, for for the neighbor um, so the neighbor is not someone that you can get rid of the neighbor is someone you share proximity with you share social reality with whether you like them or not Right. So the idea is not, hey, let's make our friend, our enemies our friends. Right? Um, it's, it's going, no, 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 you can have a, a neighbor who you despise, who you hate. Right? You can have a neighbor who annoys you so much, but they're your neighbor. You have to tarry with their otherness. You can't just remove it. The enemy is someone you can kill, you can destroy, you can abolish. 
the neighbor is one that you have to somehow interact with. And I think I, I told a story last month at the seminar about when I lived in the village in Belfast, I had a neighbor who was very, very difficult guy and um, a, a kind of a very, like a paramilitary guy. Um, and uh, uh, he would sometimes just like play really loud music uh, at starting at like three in the morning and going all night. And um, it was difficult because this was the toxicity of the other, like literally the music of the other, just like when people use Bluetooth speakers at the beach or whatever, you know, there or play their music really loudly in their car. They're kind of like somehow invading space that you feel the invasion of the other, that some, somehow their jouissance, their enjoyment is being pushed on you. So when you're, uh, I'm just thinking about this because yesterday a car was driving past me and it was blasting out this music. And so the idea is this, this person's jouissance, they're enjoying this music, but they're kind of pushing their enjoyment onto me. And there, there's always something slightly uh, uh, distasteful about that, about whenever you don't choose someone else's jouissance, their pleasure, but that pleasure is being you know, pushed onto you. So this guy's music is coming through the walls and I have to... Go get up, go round, knock on the door, and try and have a conversation with this guy. Um, and you know, like we we navigated that, you know. But like we were never going to be friends. Uh, we uh, and I didn't want it to become enemies because if it became enemies, I'd be the one that would suffer the most out of that. Uh, but it was trying to kind of somehow go. We are neighbors. We are living together. We share a wall together. How do we? How do we do this? So that's a kind of neighbor. So it's not some kind of like, hey, we can all get along. Um, in, in the Troubles in Northern Ireland, the, the peace process started, really got into, into its flow when you realize that neither side, the loyalists, the nationalists, were going to get rid of the other, right? There was no chance in which one side would utterly obliterate the other. Uh, they were neighbors, literal neighbors. I mean, in Northern Ireland, there's more peace walls in Northern Ireland, I think, than anywhere else in the world. Um, and there's even peace walls that separate parks, but there are peace walls that separate neighborhoods. So you're, in some places, your back garden is a, is a wall, and on the other side is the other side of the community, and obviously they've got the other side of the wall. So these walls are literally separating people who are just you know, feet apart from each other. Um, so all of these peace walls dividing everybody, friend and enemy. Um, but realizing, hold on, we share a very small piece of land together. Um, we don't have to like each other uh, for a variety of good reasons. Like e each side has blood on their hands. But somehow we have to tarry with each other. Somehow we have to, to enter into a conflict with the other. And... Um, you know, the peace process was that, that tarrying with the other, that rendering an enemy into a neighbor. Um, so, oh, my camera flashed. Sometimes that means it's turned off, no, it's still working. Um, <clears throat> so well, then we come to this notion of not simply tolerating the other, right? Tolerating the neighbor, because in one way we can maybe see the 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 political advantage of tolerating the neighbor, of tarrying with the otherness of the neighbor, with the frenemy. Um, but you have this interesting biblical injunction, uh, which is fascinating, which is you have to love 
your enemy. Um, and it's in Leviticus, and it, the theme is right through the biblical text, right into the New Testament, where it grows even more. So when it first arises, this idea of love your neighbor, um, the early commentaries on that was all about who is your neighbor, and it was very, very narrow. Um, the narrowest were people who said, well, this is for observant Jews. Your neighbor is your observant fellow Jew. Um, and then for others, it meant the Jewish community as a whole. And for a few, it meant anybody um, in other monotheistic religions. So it was quite regional notion at first, as you can imagine, when it, this notion comes in, there's not a universality to it. There's a universal dimension, you can hear it, but, um, but it takes time for that universal dimension to, to work itself out. And it works itself out in the Jewish tradition, and it works itself out in the Christian tradition. So in Christianity, you have this interesting moment when uh, uh, you know, Jesus is asked, you know, what does it mean to, um, uh, to serve God? And he says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Love, love your Lord with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And then later on, in the biblical tradition, you have this notion um, that I think it's Paul brings out, which is uh, not that you love God and you love your neighbor, but now you just love your neighbor. And in loving your neighbor, you love God. So there's this really interesting development, very subtle development through the text from love your neighbor and the growth of that and you should love your neighbor and love God to the very interesting radical kind of dialectic point of no, you just love your neighbor, but in loving your neighbor, you are loving God. Um, so I wanna come back to what that means in a second. But this, this injunction to love your neighbor is fascinating because it's full of all sorts of problems. The first problem is, can you command somebody to love, right? That's a, can't command love. Love is the very thing you can't command. If you command that someone has to love somebody, that's not love. Uh, but also, it's an absurd notion on the face of it. Um, Freud, brilliantly in Civilization as Discontents, he, he draws this out. He kind of does a kind of very Kierkegaardian thing where Kierkegaard does this with Abraham and Isaac. He goes, this is a crazy story. Don't just kind of read it. You know, think about how mad it is. Because if, we, if we're going to get anything out of it, uh, we first have to understand his horror. And Freud kind of does something similar with this notion of love your neighbor. He's like, think about it. This is madness. And I'll read what he says, actually. It's, it's interesting <laughs> what, uh, what Freud says about love, loving your neighbor. Um, he says, why would we do it? What good will it, will it do us? But above all, how shall we even achieve it? How can it be possible? My love is something valuable to me, which I ought not throw away without reflection. It imposes duties on me for whose fulfillment I must be ready to make sacrifices. If I love someone, they must deserve it in some way. They deserve it if they are so like me in important ways that I can love myself in them. And they deserve it if they are so much more perfect than myself that I can love my ideal of my own self in them. So what Freud's talking about there is how love in a very primal way is a type of seeing ideals in the other that, that reflect something of yourself. So, so there's a narcissistic dimension in that primitive type of love. So he's talking about that. Whereas you don't have that with the neighbor, right? Neighbor is somebody who could be very unlike you. And he goes on to say, 
Um, but if he is a stranger to me, and if he cannot attract me by any worth of his own uh, or any significance, um, sorry, but if he is a stranger to me, and if he cannot attract me by any worth of his own or any significance that he may already have acquired for my emotional life, it will be hard for me to love him. Indeed, I should be wrong to do so, for my love is valued uh, by, all, um, by all my own people as a sign of my preferring them. And it is an injustice to them if I put a stranger on a par with them. But if I am to love them with some universal love, merely because he too is an inhabitant of love, then I love him like an insect, an earthworm or a grass snake. Then I fear that only a small modicum of my love will fall to his share. So now he's saying that basically, if you love your neighbor as you love yourself, it's kind of a bit of disrespect to your kids, right? And to the person you choose to be a life partner with or best friends with, right? Because if you're saying, well, you know, I love you just as much as I love that stranger on the street. Um, there's something, you know, that's something not quite right about that. Or, and then Freud says, or I could just love in some way that I'm supposed to love everybody because they're fellow humans. But then I'm going to love them just a little bit. I'm not going to love them with all my heart, soul, mind and strength. I'm not going to love them with some sort of abandon. Um, and then he goes on to say it gets even worse. He says, I must honestly confess that he has more claim to my hostility and even my hatred. Right, that's the neighbor. The neighbor has more claim to my hostility and even my hatred. He seems not to have the least trace of love for me and shows me not the slightest consideration. If it will do him any good at all, he has no hesitation in injuring me, nor does he ask himself whether the amount of advantage he gains bears any proportion to the extent of the harm he does to me. Indeed, he, not, he need not even obtain an advantage. If he can merely satisfy any sort of desire at all, he thinks nothing of jeering at me, insulting me, slandering me, and showing his superior power. And the more secure he feels, and the more helpless I am, the more certainly I can expect him to behave like this to me. Now that can sound very dark, but actually, as <laughs> you see it every day, um, people don't treat each other very well, especially when you can get away with it, right? You might treat people who are in your work at the same level, kind of the same, and you treat people who are above you with kid gloves, but the people beneath you, you might treat really badly. And, you know, that many of us don't really consider the other in any serious way. And of course, can you even imagine society working? Like if you're a boss and you have to fire people, you know, kind of if you love them, kind of you wouldn't do it or, or, or you would like you, it would cause lots and lots of problems where you kind of would let your, you'd, you'd take no money before you fired the other person, right? You would, it's a, it's a world where. Um, everybody would have this infinite value. So it's, it's, there's an insanity to this injunction to love your neighbor, but it's an insanity that is fascinating. Uh, the philosopher Emmanuel Levinas talks about the infinite call and value of the other. So the, the face of the other is this, is this demand not to be mistreated. And that if we open ourselves up to the face of the other, we feel, we hear that demand to be seen as humans and not be reduced to some sort of mechanism. 
And uh, Levinas actually defines theism in terms of that, and the atheism as a rejection of that. So uh, Levinas doesn't really, at one point, um, define theism as a belief in God or anything like that. It's simply an openness to the call of the other in the face of the other. It's a, it's a response to the infinite value of the other. And when we shut ourselves up, off from our neighbor, that's a form of shutting ourselves off from the, trans, the transcendental dimension, the theistic dimension, right? the theological dimension. So, uh, and then it gets even crazier than that. He even goes on to, um, uh, what does he say after that? Um, Oh yeah, well he talks about, yes, as creatures among whose instinctual endowments is to be reckoned a powerful share of aggressiveness. Their neighbour is for them not only a potential helper or sexual object, but also someone who tempts them to satisfy their aggressiveness on him, to exploit his capacity for work without compensation, to use him sexually without his consent, to seize his possessions, to humiliate him, to cause him pain, to torture and to kill him. Right, so, yeah. Um, <clears throat> So it's, a, it's stra- a strange demand to love the neighbour. So what I want to do now is just try to kind of maybe uh, begin to understand what it might mean to love a neighbour and what, what that looks like. And in order to do that, I want to start with the notion of madness. Um, that madness in the pre-modern world was something that overcame people. If you became mad, you were inhuman. You know, something animalistic was taking over you. Your natural reason, your natural humanity was being kind of snuffed out. Uh, But in the modern period, uh, from like the 1600s, it became increasingly understood that weirdly madness was not something that came from without, that overcame humanity. Madness was actually a central part of us that we're all mad, right? That, and in madness, we're talking about psychotic delusions, that kind of thing, but that madness is something that is central to human subjectivity. You can't distance yourself from it. You can't say, oh, there are the mad people out there. There's something of a madness within us. And then people who are suffering from some sort of, say, psychotic break are expressing something profoundly uh, universal about what it is to be human. So even today in the popular imagination, we think of someone having a psychotic break as, as being maybe overtaken uh, less than human, kind of like their humanity is, is being eclipsed, uh, rather than seeing this as, as a stark manifestation of something deeply true that, that is in the core and essence of who we all are, um, although most of us, that, that is, uh, not, doesn't explode in some sort of in some sort of break, so when you have in the modern period this notion that madness, this destabilization of the subject, um, is central to to what we are, then um, you can see how so much of what we do is an attempt to kind of hide from that insight, to not see ourselves as mad and crazy and weird, and whenever those crazy mad weird things come out in our lives, we distance ourselves from them, right? Those are our symptoms. The very moments when we do something that is a parapraxis, that's outside the authority of our consciousness, we go, oh, that's not me. I'm not like that, right? Um, But in a a way, those symptoms are an explosion of your subjectivity. They're actually a very, very central part of who you are and something we need to listen to. 
So when you think about this, the neighbour is someone who is other, who is strange, who is weird, got strange practices, beliefs, who is toxic, the toxicity of the other. We want to protect ourselves from the toxicity of the other, and there's loads of ways we do this, right? I mean, we do it, um, uh, you know, in sci-fi, you see technology offers us a way to get rid of toxicity. So in sci-fi movies, the future is generally depicted as very um, uh, sterile, right? Everything is like an Apple aesthetic, right? Um, and, and technologies promise a type of sterile environment where you can hang out with only people who think like you. You can shadow ban people, you can have these communities of the same and get rid of otherness. So a lot of technology is a type of uh, purity culture. I did a talk on purity culture recently where I went into more depth than this because purity culture is all about handling what is pure and impure. And right at the beginning of civilization, you have what do we do with excrement? What do we do with dirt? We get rid of it. Uh, you know, we push the dirt to the outside of the community. So purity cultures always are about who is pure and who is impure, who is stranger, who is known, who is close, who is distant, um, who is friend, who is enemy. And in sci-fi, you see that purity culture playing out. Uh, obviously today in politics, you see purity culture playing out and, and things like cancel culture or whatever. The, these ideas of a on, on all sides, by the way, you see people trying to... Uh, you know, you know, ridicule the other, uh, either ridicule the other or uh, or silence the other. So those are two different strategies. But one is to say ridicule the madness of the other, and the other is to silence it, um, to get rid of it, to 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 somehow censor. Um, but also, uh, Shizek talks about even things like coffee without caffeine, beer without alcohol, um, war without casualties. Right, no casualties on our side. All casualties invisible on the other side. Right, the reason why Shizek talks about this and makes a big deal of coffee without caffeine is not because he's against coffee without caffeine, but he's just saying symbolically, it's like you're trying to get the substance without the excess. Right, beer without alcohol is like you're trying to get the 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 beer with without its uh, alcoholic dimension, its its toxic dimension. Um, uh, you know. Or, uh, laxative chocolates I think he talks about you know chocolates that kind of don't constipate you know it's like you're trying to get rid of whatever it is that the, to the toxic element or chocolates without sugar um, these are all just symbolic ways even though these, a lot of these are good things but you are only fans right where you want to have sexual relationship without toxicity right because there's something tra traumatic about about sexual encounters so how do we do sexual encounters when we don't want the danger of, of the toxicity of the other? And uh, so that means more uh, sex that's contractual, more sex without trying to take out the danger of the toxicity that comes with sexual encounters. Um, so there's a whole pile of ways in which you see this manifesting itself in contemporary society, more people staying indoors, playing computer games, whatever it is. Uh, you know, where you're killing people without real death, right? So again, all of this is about trying to have life without its toxic dimension. That all makes sense and that's fine. But when, when you have the insight that the toxicity is part of, part of subjectivity itself, so there's a way in which you have to reckon with and tarry with a certain destabilization, a certain darkness within oneself, um, 
then it changes the, the dynamics of the cure. The cure is not to get rid of the enemy and to create purity and sameness um, and sanity against madness, but to somehow kind of make peace with a certain madness within ourselves and see that madness as actually productive, something that makes us singular individuals, actually the very thing that makes us lovable, makes us interesting, um, the very thing that gets us to do things that we wouldn't otherwise do if we were sensible, you know, um, uh, bungee jumping or whatever. Um, so there's something about going that, and that the explosion of madness comes whenever you try to get rid of it. Now, if that's true, then the neighbor is vital because the neighbor is one whose toxicity you can't get rid of, right? They're, they're there, you see it. Their otherness is, um, is obvious to you. And then if you love your neighbor, one of the ways to understand what this means is that you, you see yourself through your neighbor's eyes. And then you see that you have an otherness within yourself, that you have a madness within you. So the first experience is when I encounter you as other, I think you're mad, weird, strange, monstrous. But then I see myself through your eyes and I go, my political beliefs are weird. My, the way I raise my kids is a bit strange or monstrous or whatever. It's like, you know, I see your culture as, as the bizarre one and, and everything I do is just the way it should be. Like that's just normal. But then I have that encounter with your otherness and then an encounter with my own otherness through your eyes. So the other becomes the way in which you see a dimension of yourself that you would rather not see. So that's really the real danger of the other and why we don't like the neighbor. We don't like the neighbor, not because they're other, but because they expose our own otherness to ourselves. They can confront us with our own darkness. They can confront us with our own monstrosity, with the fact that our political, religious, cultural views are actually a bit bizarre, maybe. Um, and that's, that's something that we're not really prepared to look at. So you're the one who's got the weird views. But when I'm in proximity with you and I love your otherness, as in I open myself up to it and I allow myself to to kind of see, to kind of walk in your shoes and to see myself, then I get to see my own otherness. Now, this is a different type of love than the love Freud was talking about. So in, in that quote that I read to you, Freud was saying that we love what in the other, what we love in ourselves, um, or we love in the other what we wish we had in ourselves, our own ideals. And we all know that type of love when you go to a party and you meet someone who thinks the same as you and sees the world in a similar way and you feel this kindred spirits. And that's called love in the imaginary and that's, we all can experience that. But this type of love can be called love in the real. This is where you don't love the other because they're the same. You actually love their otherness. You love their destabilizing presence. You love something in them because that, that, that shows that destabilizes you, that kind of throws you off, that kind of gets you to think of yourself in another way. Now that doesn't mean that you like them, doesn't mean you have to hang around with them, but it's almost like the neighbor is this other that, that somehow reflects your own otherness back to yourself. And you know, in a very concrete way, let's say homelessness, right? You're, you're, the homeless person is your neighbor. And in, in a very philosophical sense, you go, oh, the, the homeless p 
people, that's a problem. We have to try to figure out how to have less homelessness, right? But no, they're the solution to a problem. There's a problem within our society that creates homelessness, creates conditions for certain mental health issues or certain issues in terms of not being able to uh, survive, uh, to be able to pay your rent, all of that. There's problems within our society and the solution is homelessness. When you treat the, the homeless as your neighbor, you allow yourself to be seen through their eyes and you see that they are God to you. They are the good news to you. Right? Instead of me being good news to the homeless, I'm going to help the homeless by giving them a blanket, by giving some food out. I go, no, I go to the homeless because they're good news to me. They show that there's a problem within the society that I participate in that causes this issue. And if I can address that in some way, then this will begin to diminish and disappear. So this brings me to the idea that to love your neighbour is to love God. If you have a definition of God as a projectile that destabilizes us, so God is this, this absolute other that we do not understand, we do not grasp, but rather kind of like kind of shows us to ourselves, shows us our own otherness, destabilizes us, then in loving the otherness of the neighbor, you are encountering the otherness of God, the destabilizing force that Karl Barth spoke about so much, right? And, um, and Luther spoke about this kind of religion, not as a projection, not like liberal theology as God as a projection of ourselves, but in radical theology, God is the name for something that breaks our projections, that, that destroys our notions, right? Always comes in as a no to our yes and destabilizes us. So now we have a connection directly with love of neighbor and love of God to open yourself up to the neighbor who is a type of enemy, other, who is a friend, a same, who is in your, who can't be cut out of society, who you have to wrestle with, you have to tarry with, that as you open yourself up to their madness, their otherness, their toxicity, you begin to glimpse your toxicity, your madness, your darkness. And in that experience of, of love, where you're loving them and loving yourself, the otherness within yourself, that begins to change. That toxicity is less damaging and in fact turns from being damaging to being productive. So that can be a way of, of understanding what it means to love the, the neighbor as you love yourself and to love God through the neighbor. Um, and I'll give a couple of examples of this and then I'll see if there's any questions that you have. If you have any questions, write them down in the uh, chat box. And if you write question in big letters and capital letters before it, I'm more likely to be able to see it. Um, I'll finish with uh, two examples. One, um, interfaith dialogue, right? So traditionally, interfaith dialogue between religions either is a type of uh, uh, saying why well, your religion's better than theirs, right? And I may be trying to convince another faith group or another tribal group to, to join your group, right? So there's a little bit of interfaith dialogue in the, that's about that. Or interfaith dialogue is about kind of like kind of seeing how, oh, amidst all of our differences, we're all the same, we're all coming from the same source, right? That's very, very common within progressive circles, the idea that, that all religions are the same, or different names for the same unnameable truth, right? The same ocean is, is underneath them all and feeds them all. Um, 
uh, and which kind of then really disrespects kind of otherness, right? But but all of that, as you can see, is a way of getting rid of the, t the real toxicity of the other, right? What about an interfaith dialogue in which you engage with the other and they help you see all the toxicity within your own religion? So in other words, it's not like my religion is better than yours. It's not all our religions are the same, basically. And it's not... Um, uh, was uh, my room's better than yours? All of them are same. Um, it's it's almost like I your religion's wrong, or or yeah, my religion's right for me. Your religion's right for you. That's another one. You know, you know, you're right for you, or right for me. There's a type of interfaith dialogue in which you go, your religion is wrong for you, and my religion is wrong for me, <laughs> and you help me to see the wrongness of my religion and I help you see the wrongness of yours. In other words, there's toxicity within my own tradition that I can only see through encountering you. So you become an instrument of my further conversion. You, uh, by engaging in this dialogue, we end up not changing religions or finding some sameness that gets rid of our the weirdness of each other, but, but your weirdness helps to show me that what we do is very weird and bizarre. Because your own religion is as bizarre as another. You look at Hindu religions and gods with loads of arms and you go, that looks really weird. But imagine them looking at this idea of God being a carpenter, hanging around, making chairs and all of that. You know, that's weird. <laughs> so, you know, you suddenly you kind of you start you suddenly kind of like see the weirdness through the other. The other becomes an instrument of your further conversion. And that was the basis of the evangelism project, which was a group of people who would go to other communities to be evangelized by them. So, and this happened in Belfast, and the point was not that you'd be evangelized into Scientology or the Jewish tradition or Buddhism or whatever, and that might happen, but the idea was you encounter this group, you learn about them, but then you ask the question, what do we look like to you? Let us see ourselves through your eyes and you encounter your own toxicity through the other. And through that encounter, that toxicity can be transformed, can be changed. Okay, so in a nutshell, we've looked at the categories of friend and enemy. Friend is the same, enemy is the other. And I've introduced the notion of the neighbor as a type of frenemy, as a type of otherness that is the same, a type of distance that's proximate. Uh, you, you have to engage with the neighbor, even though the neighbor is weird and strange and other. And then we looked at what does it mean to actually not just tolerate the neighbor, but to love the neighbor. And maybe what that means is that you directly confront their otherness. You don't try to cover it over. You don't try to hide it. You don't try to tolerate it or ignore it. But you see in their uh, toxic dimension something of your own toxicity. You open yourself up to that. And that is, an, that is a transformative process for you. And as you do that, that's also a transformative process for them. Because if I say to you, yeah, I'm going to listen to what you say, right? You're a Democrat, I'm a Republican or whatever. And I go like, um, uh, I'm going to listen to your critiques of me. I'm really going to listen. I'm going to try to see myself through your eyes because I can't understand why you take the position you take, but you take it for some reason. Help me understand. And the idea is not that I'm going to become a Democrat, but I, I'm going in going, you'll make me a better Republican. And then you're like, oh my goodness, well maybe you'll make me not a Republican, but you might make me a better Democrat because I don't understand why you take that position. And suddenly the point is not, you know, the Democrat to make the Republican a Democrat. 
or the Republicans to make the, the Democrat a Republican. It's you can make me a better Republican or you can make me a better Democrat um, by exposing to me my own otherness. There's something about that being a love, not a love of the same, but actually a love of the other that opens up a transformative experience with your own otherness. All right, let's see if there's any questions. Uh, doo -doo -doo. Uh, so here's one, Bjorn. Uh, is there a name for the following dynamic? Enemy versus neighbor dynamic happening, playing out within one psyche, within one individual. Oh yeah, could that relate to how the same individual relates to the other? Yeah, oh, absolutely, absolutely. If I get you right, so, so, with, so within, an within myself, can I have like a type of friend, enemy distinction? Yeah, that like splitting. I, um, I think, yeah, what you're talking about is maybe like that very primitive, one of the most primitive defense mechanisms is splitting the world into goodies and baddies into friend and enemy. But internally, the good part of yourself and the bad part of yourself. We all know, we all, so many of us live this in some small way, you know, but there's, you can have um, uh, that very split within yourself, some part of yourself that you hate and you despise, that then you put onto the other. I mean, one of the things about that internal friend-enemy split is, you, there's a part of yourself that you so hate that you project onto somebody else and they carry it and then you hate them because what you've done is you've projected your own disavowed split onto somebody else. And so yeah, it, the part of this understanding of the neighbor is that helps to break that entire defense mechanism. So uh, I think I'm totally with you. And then I've just put it onto this, the, uh, a wider social thing, which is a lot of the friend-enemy distinction is born out of a person is not able to have uh, to tolerate ambiguity within themselves to tolerate ambivalence within themselves um, uh, Melanie Klein you know talks about the difference between she calls it the paranoid schizoid position and the depressive position so the paranoid schizoid position is like friend enemy and within yourself there's part of you that you hate a part of you that's acceptable and you split the world and part of the therapy is, is getting to what she calls a depressive position, which sounds depressing, but it's the depressive position is the ability to handle ambivalence, the ability to handle your own internal conflicts. So yeah, definitely. In fact, you, you've made the connection, which is when you see an external friend-enemy distinction, you'll generally find that played out within someone's psyche. Hopefully, I, I think I'm connecting with what you're asking. Um, Oh yeah, Kevin said, I would like to discuss sometime music as communal interaction rather than only a hyper-private event uh, or only an aggressive act. Oh, that's interesting. Um, yeah, okay, that's, that's, um, that's interesting. Uh, yeah, music is a very private event, except you do know, concerts or whatever, because like in churches you sing together, there's something important about that. Tell me more about that, Kevin, or write an email about where you think we could go with that topic, because... I'd be very interested in exploring that. Or tell me where you think this connects specifically with this topic, if you're thinking about that as well. Um, but I think I just jumped into a conversation between you and Kate, so sorry about that. Uh, so then Kev says, 
Uh, oh, regarding the loud neighbor, <laughs> yes. Number one, um, I think I am said neighbor sometimes. <laughs> Very good. That's, well, you're not like this guy, honestly. This is something else. Um, and to start the conversation with, hey, great music, man. Mind turn it down just a bit. Yeah, that's that's very good. It's like the art of having to navigate that complicated thing. Yeah, um, but yeah, definitely you 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 weren't like this guy. <laughs> Although you know what? In fairness to him, when I went, as you said, non-aggressively. So I was non-aggressive, and I was like, you know, hey, how's it going? Da da da. Introduce myself. Said you know about the music. At first, he was very very aggressive, but. They, you know, obviously I was taking a very non-aggressive stance. I mean, even when I'm t telling you about it, I've got my hands like this. I'm very open, uh, legs apart. It's very, and, and, he's, and he did soften. He was very nice, you know. Um, he was just a very, um, very messed up guy. Um, Samuel says, I feel like the difference between what Pete said and what you're saying, Kate, which I don't know what you're saying because that's a conversation. Oh, yeah. Is whose self is being extinguished? And in your case, it is the individual. Okay, that's a conversation. Sorry, I won't uh, jump into that. Oh, here we go. Here's um, advice for forming close relationships. Do we form close relationships based on our preferred otherness? That feels biased. Mm, that's interesting. So there's a great book called, what's it called? Um, it's by Bruce Fink and it's on love. I think it's called The Can on Love. And it looks at love in three registers. And, you know, and it's, it's very readable because Fink's a very, very good writer, but it's, you know, it's pretty, you know, but it goes quite deep. But he does talk about um, three kind of ways in which we love. So there's love in the imaginary and that basically is love in which you, you, you love what, what your own ideals are reflected back to you. So there's that love of, say, meeting somebody and you're going like, we see the world in the same way. Oh my goodness, you don't like that person too or you like that music as well and whatever. And then there's love in the symbolic, which is where, you know, the other that you love takes on a symbolic function. So somebody treats their uh, their partner like a mother or a father. Um, or so, to, and you see this, you see this a lot, but where the other... Is, is inhabiting a symbolic function for the person, a symbolic function from their past. So in some way in which something they're reliving from their, their childhood is being symbolically reenacted in, in, in the relationship. And then there's love in the real. And love in the real is where um, it's that kind of connection with precisely that part of the other that is not like you, that completely destabilizes you. Like the, it's the destabilizing presence of the other. and. You know, in a way, love encompasses all of those to some extent, and there's negative parts of all of those, right? So negative love in the imaginary is just, you're always the honeymoon period, you're always just falling, you just want that, that high of meeting the other who's not other. Uh, the symbolic is, of course, then you're just replaying your mummy or daddy issues in your relationship um, and not really kind of working them through, but just, just kind of like living them on in your adulthood. And then love in the real is where you have couples who, you know, you can end up doing some, you know, Bonnie and Clyde or something like that. It's an incredibly, can be a ferocious type of love. But yeah, there's, um, I do like that notion of, of the different love in the imaginary, the symbolic and the real. Uh, Samuel, is being a neighbor the greatest state of relationship to have with another? I would think that friendship would be higher with friendship meaning shared neighborliness 
from all involved. Yes, I mean, yeah, I would say that, that the difference between friend and neighbor is, yeah, friend, friend's kind of what you want, right? You want to hang out with your friends. You don't really want to hang out with your neighbors, at least not very much. So neighbor for me is a category, it's, it's almost like a political category, or it's a, it's a category that of how to understand how we interact with others. So, and, the, and the, the point here, which I like is, you're not trying to make your friends, your enemies into friends, right? That's, that's, the, that's often you hear that, is like an uh, enemy is just a friend whose story you haven't heard, right? So there's this notion that, that we can kind of move the, the enemy to the friend. But I think that's, that's got problems for so many reasons. One is, my goodness, you can only have a certain amount of friends. I mean, I, like, you know, I, I don't know, how, like when you're young, you might have like 20 or 30 friends, you know, as you get older, I mean, you might have kind of one and you have a few that you kind of keep in contact with a little bit, but friendship is, um, you know, quite an intimate thing. Um, but neighbor, I think, is a political category in a sense. It's a, and it's also, it's a, it's a, it helps us understand, like, you know, how to relate to people who aren't our friends. So that's the thing, I, I want to avoid the move. That's why I call this from, from, enemy to neighbor not from enemy to friend because i think there's all these problems associated with that friend enemy distinction the neighbor is the as i say it's the syllogism it's the bringing together of sameness and otherness um uh but that doesn't mean you don't have friends it's just like you can't make everybody your friend i don't want to make that guy who was next door to me a friend he doesn't want me as a friend either but um, he can be a neighbor and that can be a mutually transformative thing. That's kind of what I would say anyway. Um, and then Matt, uh, uh, how, how do you reconcile living lovingly together in a political system in which even facts and objectives, truths are disputed? Uh, America seems possible to reconcile. Yeah, this is where, I mean, I would love to see, I think there's a real place for this if any of you want to do it as well. It's like, like, um, Right, let's let's take it at a small level for a start. It's like a podcast, for example, in which you have debates between two people where the idea is each person says, I'm here to help you. I want you to help me be better in my position. So it's an evangelism project, right? That would be fascinating. Just seeing debates in which the point is not to win the debate um, or to find even mutual kind of connection, but rather where you say to the other, you're going to be... I want you to be the lens through which I become a better person and then the other person vice versa. And I would love to see more spaces that, that do that. I, in my own life, and I feel at this sometimes, try not to, because we're all tempted, whatever position we have, we're tempted to watch those videos that ridicule the other, right? That, that, that look at the madness of the other, whoever the other is, and makes fun of it. Um, like, the, you know, these Karen videos or something, which I find pretty awful but where um you know where pe people who are often mentally ill are you know ridiculed because there's a there's a political dimension a symbolic dimension so what would it look like for someone to have a youtube channel in which they look at the extremes of their the opposition and they go why is that so extreme and then they look at the extremes of their own position and kind of like you know soften people up a little bit we just need people who and we need that on podcasts, we need it in books, we need it on debates, on TV, we need it on YouTube. Um, it's gonna be hard to do, but, but it's, and there are people who do it. There are definitely people who do it on both sides of the aisle. Um, but, uh, 
you know, we need more. <laughs> um, I think it's possible, but I do agree with you. We live in dangerous times. Like, we genuinely live in dangerous times. Um, uh, Kevin, uh, one of the uses of the idea of neighbor in the Old Testament comes in Samuel when Saul is told that his kingdom has been given to his neighbor who is greater. Um, and then you continue. Uh, David, uh, greater. Oh, yeah. Uh, continued. Oh, sorry, I'm confused here now. Jesus, oh, yeah, Jesus seems to pick up on this when he talks about John the Baptist being the least in heaven. Uh, any thoughts on how this asks neighbor? That's very good. So let me just say it again, connected to you. That's annoying because the chat box only allows you to put a certain amount in, yeah. Uh, one of the uses of the idea of the neighbor in the Old Testament comes in Samuel when Saul is told that his kingdom has been given to his neighbor who is greater. Um, and then Jesus seems to pick this up when he talks about John the Baptist being the least in heaven. Any thoughts on how this asks neighbor? I don't know. I th um, I wish you had more space in the chat box to tell me more of your thoughts on that because I think there's something really good in what you're saying. But um, uh, I'd like to hear. I'd more like to hear what you you think about that. Um, I can't remember the uh, the Samuel story, <laughs> so I don't know exactly know what that is. I do know the Jesus story. So it picks John the Baptist being the least in heaven. Uh, any thoughts on myself? So yeah, I'll leave it at that. But if you want to write something, great. Um, Wendy, does this shift? to neighborly love requires to shift from our brain stem to our frontal lobe brain. Haha, <laughs> meditation, yoga, encouragement. You know, yeah, that's an area that I don't know so much about, but I, but I, I think that's a language to describe it. I know there is, um, uh, you know, people who, do, who are interested in kind of the, like yourself potentially, neuroscience and meditation and how that affects different parts of the brain. And so my guess is there's, there could be connections with that. Um, I, you know, for me, meditation, like anything, has its pluses and negatives. Um, but meditation, if, which I've seen, like, you know, you'll know more research than me, but some research that maybe seems to suggest that it makes people more reflective, um, less quick to judge, that kind of thing. Um, but then sometimes meditation can be just also like a gas release valve you do on a Thursday night to kind of get you into the system. But no, but I um, I think, yeah, there's probably something really interesting in what you're saying. That's just not an area I know much about. But I've got a feeling that language of meditation and yoga and uh, its connection to neuroscience could have very productive um, kind of connections there. Um, I'll do one more. Um, oh, I think that might be the last there are the rest of your notes um, oh yeah Kevin says re regarding the evangelism project as Peter suggests I tried it recently with a new co-worker it was a disaster <laughs> because we were not there for the same reason um, I'd like to hear more about that huh? I tried to say so as in did you go with a co-worker to a group um, but it didn't work uh Oh yeah, because you said need to be certain that all are here for the same larger reason. Ah, yeah, that's that's interesting. Um, uh, not knowing the ins and outs of it, but you're saying yeah, you, that the, 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 your coworker had a very different kind of expectation of what things were about. That's interesting because yeah, in the Vaseline project, I really tried to. I didn't fully understand it myself when I was running it. Like I couldn't have articulated it like I articulate it now. 
but I did kind of have a sense for it. And yeah, you're right. A lot of it was about getting us all on the same page of going like, there's something about us going here where we're opening ourselves up to the voice of the other. Um, and we went to see Ian Paisley, who's this fundamentalist preacher. That was a great time because we all went in. And again, it was the idea of let's see ourselves through his eyes. And it was an incredibly enjoyable experience. Um, okay, listen, thanks very much for being part of this Paris seminar on the neighbor. I just wanted to introduce the topic. I feel it's one I want to kind of get deeper into. So I, I don't know if I did it any justice at all. Um, but if, if I was to put it in a nutshell, uh, that I think neighbor is an interesting category that goes beyond friend and enemy. And the idea of the neighbor is that there is another that whose toxicity we have to tolerate. We can't get rid of the toxicity of the other. We can't get rid of our own toxicity, but we deny it as much as possible. But when we encounter it in the neighbor and we tarry with our neighbor, eventually then we confront it in ourselves. And that confrontation is itself transformative. And a lot of things like the, the peace process in Northern Ireland was exactly that. The other was toxic. The other was mad. The other was evil. But then through tarrying with the other, you go, oh, there's an evil and a madness and a destruction that is within my community um, that I basically um, have a vested interest in avoiding of not seeing. And as I'm confronted with that, I can tarry with that in my own community which which also helps potentially soften the other group up to do the same and what you kind of find is what seems like a war of all against all can become a healthier field for real disagreement and real change so if you remember nothing else from the seminar that's probably the main thing that i wanted to touch on today